If you can remember back to last week, before the Super Bowl was looming on the horizon and you had to work out whether you were a 49ers fan or not a 49ers fan and who was going to win and all of those kind of things, um, we spent a little bit of time looking at this beautiful little passage of Scripture from Acts chapter 2. I spoke about it as a passage which was really a life-changing, world-changing passage of Scripture. And I talked about it as being a vision not just for us in vintage Pasadena, but really as a mandate a vision for the whole of the church throughout the whole of the world. Um, Gandhi, who was probably um, one of the most famous voices of the 21st century, one of the biggest moral leaders of the 20th century, he said this, uh, if Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christians today. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of the Bible, all of India would be Christians today. Now, I don't know if that is a bit of an exaggeration, but what I do know is that Gandhi got a vision for what God's teachings were about who the church was meant to be. And he realized that if the church was really the church and stood up and did what it was called to be, then the world would never be the same again. And so I absolutely love this little passage of scripture in Acts chapter 2. And we won't normally do this, but we're going to spend this, this week, as we did last week, looking at these five verses. And even as I go through and just pull out two, two and a half more things from these verses, um, even that won't get to the bottom of everything that's included within them. And next week, as we get into Acts chapter 3... I'm going to look a little bit about one of the third things that's in that passage. Um, But it's so beautiful. And so um, we're going to get straight involved. And I'm uh, going to ask, I think, uh, Greg is reading? No, Irene is reading, which is really great. She's going to read for us Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. So it'll be on the screen if you need it. Um, And also, um, you can get it in your Bibles or on your devices or whichever way you want to do that. Thank you. The Fellowship of Believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions and gave to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily to those who are being saved. Great. Thank you, Irene, for reading that. Um, Irene is one of our team leaders. She's on our core team. She's amazing, isn't she? She also looks after all the hospitality teams for us. So we love having Irene in our community like everybody else. Last week, I spoke about this passage. I spoke about this early church as being a people who were full of the Holy Spirit, who were centered on the word of God, and a community of people who loved God, loved each other, loved the world around them in a way that the world so rarely gets to see and to experience. And today, I want to look at two more characteristics of what this early church were. They were a community of people who prayed, and they were a community of people who worshiped God together. They were a community of prayer and a community group, a community of worship. Now, um, in the short time we have together, I can't tell you everything that you need to know about prayer, and I can't tell you everything you need to know about worship. All we're doing in these first weeks is we're painting a picture, a vision for what this might look like if we take it seriously in our lives and seriously in our church. But over the months to come, we'll spend so much more time 
thinking about what it really means to get in these things right deep down in our personal lives and in our corporate lives. But first up, these guys prayed. Uh, it says in uh, verse 42, they devoted themselves. They were passionate. They were all in about prayer. Now, what I simply mean by that and what they simply meant by that was this. They talked to God. They listened to God. They had a relationship with God. They were devoted to those things. Now, the passage doesn't really tell us too much about exactly how that worked, about exactly what was involved. But as so often is the way with scripture, what we have to do is we have to join it up a little bit. We have to do a bit of digging. We have to do a little bit of investigating work. And so here we have like 3,000 people. Probably many of them just become Christians like almost that day or in the very the weeks that had preceded it. Trying to figure out what it means to pray. So how did they know how to pray? Well, we know that they know how to pray a little bit because they were Jews. They were people who knew a bit about God from their past, from their traditions, from all the teachings that they'd have grown up with. But we also know that they learned most of the things they knew through the apostles' teaching. That's one of the things we looked at last week. So if these guys learned how to pray through the apostles, we probably have to ask the question, well, how on earth did the apostles know how to pray? And I got a little diagram up here, the apostles learned how to pray because they were taught by Jesus himself. Jesus taught the apostles, the apostles taught the church. That's how they learned to pray. So we've got to ask, what did Jesus teach the apostles about how to pray? Well, really conveniently for us in Luke chapter 11, we find out the very answer to that. Luke 11, chapter 1, earlier in Luke's writing says this, One day, while Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Hey, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say. Okay, little little quiz for you. What did Jesus say? Anyone know? I know some of you guys know this. Come on. The Lord's Prayer. Around the world today, millions, if not billions of people will pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and it continues like that. This was the prayer that Jesus gave the very first church to pray. And so therefore, if we wanna know what did these guys do when they prayed, this is what they did when they prayed. And so I don't have time uh, to talk about all the different things that are in the Lord's Prayer. There's kind of months worth of beautiful things in the Lord's Prayer. But I want to take three things that were in the Lord's Prayer that if you overlay them with what the early church did, you can see something about how they prayed, how they became a praying people. And the first one is this. They prayed together. These are all very simple, by the way. They prayed together. It says in Acts chapter 2 that when they gathered, they gathered in massive gatherings, thousands of people in the temple, and when they gathered in their homes, they spent time praying for and with one another. The Lord's Prayer starts with these words, Our Father in heaven. We probably think about it naturally like my father, my daddy. It's about me. It's about my prayer life. But actually, the Lord's Prayer primarily is about a community of people praying together. It doesn't say, give me today my daily bread. It says, give us today our daily bread. These guys prayed together. And although when we talk in church so often about prayer, we're talking about like, hey, what we do in our personal time, what we do in our private time, what these guys understood primarily is, hey, when you pray, you do it with other people. We do it as the people of God because when we pray together, something happens. When we pray together, something happens. 
The second thing is, they were people who were an asking community. When they prayed, this is the most obvious thing that you'll hear in church today, I realize. But when they prayed, they asked God for stuff. In fact, they, what they were, did was they recognized that they didn't have all the answers to all the questions and all the problems and all the things that go on in life, that they needed God to step in. They needed a heavenly father who loved them, who cared for them to provide the things that they need. But if you notice, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, what Jesus says in it, he says, give us today our daily bread. Now, I feel like in my life, when I translate that, what I really mean is this, hey God, give me for the rest of my life all the amazing things that I can possibly think about having ever. Dear Lord Jesus, please make me a millionaire. Please give me a Ferrari. Please put the 49ers win a little bit later on today, whatever it might, might be. What Jesus says is this, give us today, right now, in this place, as a community, the very things that we need in our lives so that we can be part of your kingdom. He doesn't say foie gras, he says bread. He doesn't even say wine, he says bread. But God does want us to go to him with the things that we need. In fact, he goes on a little bit later on. If you go a bit further down, he says in verse 9, So I say to you, disciples, church, ask. Ask me, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Now, the church uses those little verses everywhere. We use it to raise our faith, to remind us that God's good. But sometimes we miss the next bit. Because often when we pray, what we're doing is, hey God, would you just sort out all our problems and make everything perfect? Actually, if you go down a little bit further in that verse, it says what we're going to get. It doesn't say we're going to get a Ferrari or a millionaire, become a millionaire. Actually, it says what we're going to get is the Holy Spirit. What God wants to give us is the Holy Spirit. When we want all our problems to be fixed, sometimes what God wants to give us is himself. When we want to become a millionaire, what God wants to give us is his presence and his love and to be in relationship with us. That's what the early church had in spades, God's presence with them. And so they prayed. They asked God to deliver people from sickness, to heal people, to save people. They were a community of people who prayed together and they asked God because they recognized they needed him to be involved in their lives. But they also did this. They submitted to God. They submitted to God. So we think probably that you know, prayer is really about saying, hey God, these are the things I need. When actually the Lord's Prayer doesn't start with that at all. The Lord's Prayer starts, Father, Daddy, you're in heaven. You're awesome. You're amazing. Awesome, incredible, wonderful is your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven, as we just prayed it a few minutes ago. That's how the Lord's Prayer starts. These guys were people who submitted to God. They were asking for God's will to be done. They recognized that history was not about their story. It was about God's story. This is his story. That when we get involved in life, what we're doing is not asking God to partner with us to give us what we need in our stories, but actually that God is outworking plans and purposes in the world that we get to join in with. Do you see the radical difference of that statement? So often we make the world about us and we say, God, would you help us in our story? The, the early church didn't do that at all. The early church recognized that they needed to partner with God in his story because he had plans and purposes and they wanted to understand and join in with what God was doing in the world. And we see it in Acts chapter one when the early church said, okay, right, we need to find somebody to be on our leadership team. 
They had Judas Iscariot on their leadership team. It didn't go very well. If you've ever read the Easter story, you'll know why it didn't go very well. They had him on their leadership team. They needed somebody to replace Judas Iscariot. So they said at the end of Acts chapter 1, they actually get the answer to what they do. They say, Lord, show us which of these two, the two people who potentially could be on the leadership team, show us which one you've chosen. They realized that they needed God's guidance in their lives. But it wasn't about persuading God to be in, come and do what they wanted. It was about finding out what God was doing and how they could join in with their lives. So they were a people who submitted and sought out the will of God. Now, in some ways, we're very blessed because we know what God's will is. We have the Bible. We know what God says about poverty. We know what God says about the poor. We know what God says about the world. We know what God says about salvation. But there are also so many ways where we don't know in life, right? Ever come to that place where you're like, God, I'll do anything you want, but I have no idea what you want right now. We get to those places, don't we? And so it says that these guys spent time waiting, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Um, you guys, many of you will know that we, Laura and I, moved out from uh, the UK uh, early last year. And pretty much everybody that we know in England, I think, uh, reckons we came to California because we needed more sun, or we needed more sand, or we needed more sea, or more mountains, or whatever it was. The truth is that the reason we came to California was because at the beginning of, uh, not last year, but the year before, we prayed the most dangerous prayer I've ever prayed in my life, which was, hey God, you're in charge you do what you want with us, we're joining in. Please would you send us somewhere where you're joining in. Now I wasn't being super spiritual when I did that, but what I was doing was we recognized that the times when we'd tried to write the story of life and get God to join in with us had been a bit of a mess. But the times in our lives when we'd said, hey God, you're in charge and it's your story and you're writing something and we just want to join in because if you're doing something, it's going to be amazing, then it'd be an amazing blessing. And that's what we discovered. And that's where Vintage Pasadena came into life. It was not because anybody thought, wow, we should have a church here because we really like this building and this should have a church in it or anything like that. This is so beautiful. It's incredible. We should definitely do church here. No, it's because God is writing a story in Pasadena and he's writing a story in California. He's writing a story in the world and he's calling people to join in with his story. Do you see how that works? They were people who submitted. But don't get me wrong. Praying in that way is really hard. It's really hard. If you're like me, prayer is much easier to be like Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime? Basically, you realize in your life you're missing something. You need something. And it's not like you need it in a few weeks. You need it immediately. And so what you do is you go in front of the holy iPad of Antioch or the computer or whatever you have and you sit down and you look at the thing that you need and you go, okay, right, I need that thing. You put it in your wish list, in the basket. You click pay um, disturbingly fast and easily without even putting in your payment details. You just press pay. And what you're expecting is that that thing is going to come neatly packaged up and put right on the doorstep outside your house early the next morning, not stolen by the porch pirates anyway, right? That's what we do. And so easily, prayer becomes that story. Hey, God, just give me what I want. I need it now. I know what I need. My brain's big enough to tell you what I need. Would you just give me what I need? When so often, God says, hey, that isn't how this thing works. What I desire with you is relationship. What I desire is to show you my plans and my purposes, and I want to partner with you as we do this thing called life together. And that's what the early church did. And so we hope and pray that if you come and be part of Vintage Pasadena over the months to come, that you'll learn so much more about what it means to be a praying people.
We're all on a journey with prayer. We're all figuring it out. But we want to be prayers, prayers in our personal life, prayers when we retreat, prayers when we go in silence and meditate on who God is, but also people who pray together. Before we started this service, we gathered all the leaders, all the teams together, and we prayed that God's kingdom would come and his blessing would come and be part of this community because we realized that we needed God to be at the center of our time. When we pray, we're gonna pray for the world together as we've just done. We're gonna pray for God's kingdom to come in the world. When we meet in community groups, we're gonna pray. We want to be a people who pray and we wanna be a people who prayer minister to one another. And that's why we have the prayer ministry teams here. They're not here simply to say, God, um, Daniel needs, like he needs some more money in his life, just give him more money. They're there to do the work of, maybe he does, I don't know. Feel free to write him some checks afterwards if you need to. Um, But what they're there to do is to listen to God for us and with us. They're there to say, hey God, what do you wanna do? What are you saying? How can we partner in your kingdom with Daniel? And so that's what the prayer ministry teams will be here again a little bit later in this service as they will every week. They're there to partner with us in listening to the voice of God in his kingdom and how we can join in with that. So there were people who prayed and we wanna be a people who pray really well. Once a month, we're gonna have um, prayer walks. Once a month, we're gonna have a day of fasting. Um, Once a month, uh, once a week or once every two weeks, we're gonna send out an email for all the things that God's doing so that we can pray together because when we pray together, things change. So first up, they prayed. Second thing, and don't worry, I've only really got two things this morning. It's a bad sermon. You need three things to make a great sermon and I've only got two. I didn't have a third one. Well, I sort of do, but anyway. They were a worshiping community. Prayer and worship are always brilliantly linked in the kingdom of God. These guys worshiped God. Now, I'm sure you guys know this, but um, the Bible wasn't written in American English. I'm so sorry. It wasn't even written 500 years ago in Queen's English. The Bible was written like 2,000 years ago in and even before that, it was written in Greek and it was written in Hebrew. And so whenever we open scripture, we're reading an English translation of something which was written many, uh, hundred, many thousands of years ago. And although the Bible never changes, or the language in the Bible doesn't change and God doesn't change, sometimes the English language changes a little bit. And it can cause us points occasionally to come up with the wrong translation or a translation that means slightly less, I think, than it was originally meant. If you uh, see in verse 46, um, it says that they they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. I don't know when the last time you used the word glad was. Glad to see you. I'm grateful that you're here. It's, It's not the most emotional word. Not even if you're English, it's not really an emotional word. But the original word in the Greek was agaliasis, which means overwhelming, unbridled joy. It's kind of a bit different, isn't it? This was a community that had overwhelming, unbridled joy. How on earth did they have overwhelming and unbridled joy? It certainly wasn't because they were having a really easy time of it. They were persecuted, they were in prison, they were having to work out what it means to be people of all different cultures and backgrounds. It was so confusing and a complicated time to be alive. They lived in an occupied land with the Roman government on their back the whole time, and yet they had unbridled joy. How do you be people who had unbridled joy? Well, it tells us that they were a people of worship. Worship is an old English word. It comes from the words worth and ship. It means to give, to ascribe something its due worth. It's worth to bow down before something and say that that thing is hugely important in our lives. 
So I want to ask you a question. What do you worship? What do you worship? I guarantee you every single person in this room is a worshiper. Some of us will worship our families. Some of us will worship our jobs, our careers. Some of us will worship our cars. That's a problem I've got to work on a little bit more in my life. Some of us will worship a sports team. Some of us will be very sad at the end of today when the team that we worship isn't going to win. We worship different things, but we all worship something. If you're not sure what you worship, ask yourself this question. What gets my best? What gets the best of my time? What gets the best of my money? What gets the best of my heart, my emotions? And not just the stuff we have to do, maybe like pay rent, but what gets the very best of the best of us? This community we found, they said, it said they have a, this singleness of heart. Sincere hearts should really read singleness of heart. God got their very best. Worship is about giving God our best and not the little bit left over. I've discovered since I've been here that one of the things that's the most important and maybe even the most worshipped of all things in LA is coffee, right? <laughs> coffee. Dan, Daniel is an amazing guy. Until he's had two coffees in the morning, you don't want to talk to him. Um, after that, it's brilliant and we have a great time. It's all good. People love coffee. Now, I'm, I'm not a great expert on coffee, but what I do know is that if you want to make a great coffee, pretty much every great coffee drink starts by getting beautiful, fresh coffee beans, by grinding them to perfection, by putting just about the right amount of pressure and steam through those beans and water through those beans so that you have, in the bottom of a cup, one or two shots of steaming black coffee. Some of you are already salivating and thinking you need to go and get coffee right now. That's how you start. Now, what you do beyond that point is totally up to you. You might add steamed milk. You might add cold milk. You might add soy milk or coconut milk or all the 27 other types of milk that exist in LA. You can add all sorts of different types of milk. And once you've put those things on, you then got to decide, do I want to put some sort of shot of flavor in it? Maybe a bit of vanilla, maybe hazelnut. And then even once you've done that, you've got to decide what goes on the top. If you're going to make a cappuccino, do you sprinkle it with cinnamon? Do you sprinkle it with chocolate? What do you do to make the perfect drink? But it strikes me that so often when we think about life and in our culture, when people think about God, that when they talk about God, what they're really talking about is that God is like the sprinkling that goes on the very top of the drink. You know, if you want to, you can sprinkle a bit of cinnamon on your drink. If you want to, you can sprinkle a bit of God in your life. Maybe you do a bit of Christianity. Maybe you do a bit of Buddhism. Maybe you do a bit of New Ageism. Maybe we do some Reiki healing. Whatever it means, it might be good for you. It might be good for you. It's not really my choice because what I like is I like it to be in a different way. But in fact, what we realize, what the Bible tells us is that that is not how it works to have a relationship with God at all. God is not the froth or the sprinkling on our otherwise perfect life. It's not that we go, oh, I've got a great life. I've got a car, a job, a family, a great home. My bank account's full of money. My health's really good. Oh, I need something else on the top. Okay, I'm going to put a bit of God just to give me a little bit on the side. God is not the sprinkling on the top. God is the very coffee at the bottom of the drink. That if you take God out of the story, you don't even have a story anymore. If you take God out of life, you don't even have life anymore. God is life. We had this girl uh, last year on our Alpha course in Santa Monica. She's um, a girl who'd spent her whole life 
totally immersed in what it meant in New Ageism. Her whole world revolved around New Age meditation, all the things that go on like that. And she came to faith in Jesus. And I said, hey, what do you, you know, why did you come to faith in Jesus? And she said, well, here's the thing. When life was good, it was great to be full of New Ageism. It just worked brilliantly well and it just added a bit of extra spice to my life. But when my life went wrong, when everything fell apart, I realized it was worth nothing. It did nothing for me. It could offer me no comfort, no hope, no security, no certainty. There was nothing there. It was like fluff that disappeared. God is at the heart of life. And we are invited when we worship God to reflect, to turn our lives around. So God comes first. God comes first. Everything else comes after that. And that's really challenging, isn't it? You know, we're drawn all the time to worship things. You just need that extra thing in your life. If you just get that thing, if you worship it, if you put it high enough in your life, then you'll be happy. Nothing else works except for God. God is about, worship therefore is about reflecting on the God who is good. God who came before us, who made us. God who saved us. God who redeemed us. God who holds the world in his hand. God who is even right now speaking into our lives and God who will one day come in the future to save us for eternity and that we will get to live in his presence and his goodness forever. That's what worship is. Worship is not just about coming on Sunday and singing songs. Ever, had a conver- ever have been in one of these conversations? Man... The worship this morning was not that great. Maybe the worship leader went out too late last night. The worship didn't do it for me this morning. Ever had that conversation? I have. That is not what worship is. Worship is not about whether these guys turn up and have a great morning or not. Worship is about us turning our whole lives around and pointing them at God. That's what it is, right? That's why we worship. The songs help us do that, but that's not what the songs, the songs aren't the worship. The worship comes from us toward God. It is us orientating our lives. And this early church were a community of worship. It said that they praised God. They praised God. And so we want to be a people here at Vintage Pasadena who worship God with our whole lives. We want to recognize that God is in charge of our lives and that when we come to church, we're joining him. We're joining in with what he wants to do in the world, that it's his story and he's got good things and we want to find out what they are so that we can join in and be his servants and be part of his kingdom. But there was one thing that this early church did to hold together what it meant to be a praying community and a worshiping community. There was a pinnacle, a moment, which helped them to focus in at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that was about when they took communion or the, around the cross. If you notice in that verse where it is that they are full of unbridled joy, where it is that they praise God, actually it says when they broke bread together. It says it in verse 42 and verse 46. Now breaking bread is not just going, we love steak. So when we have a great steak, then we're going to praise God because food is really great. Now, when they used that little phrase, breaking of bread, it was a direct reference to the very last meal that Jesus ever ate on earth, the Passover meal. Because before, just before Jesus was going to die, Jesus gathered all his friends around. Here's the beautiful picture you probably know very well. I've never worked out why they all sat on one side of the table. But anyway, 
But this is the picture. Jesus, with these first followers, saying to them, this is my last meal on earth. And he uses these incredible words when he does it in in Luke's gospel that we probably don't even, um, they didn't even fully understand. In Luke chapter two, he says this, after taking the cup, the cup of wine in the middle of the meal table, he gave thanks and he took it and divide, he said, take this and divide it among you. And he, then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus was doing was teaching them about the significance of his death and his resurrection. You see, at the very heart of the Christian story is not even just a God who is out there or even God's presence in spirit. The very heart of the Christian story is the cross of Jesus Christ. At the very heart of the Christian story is the fact that God sent his very son to die for us, to redeem us, that even when our lives were a bit of a mess, then even when everything is not right, that Jesus came so that we could be forgiven, that we could be freed, that we could have that relationship with God again. And so this early church, every time they ate a meal, it said, they spent time reflecting on Jesus's sacrifice on the life that they had got through what Jesus had done from them. A little bit later on, what we find out is that they then did two things. They had great meals and they had, gave thanks. And then they had communion services, which were a bit more like we know today, where they really focused in on who Jesus was. They were a people of God who knew what it was to worship because at the very heart of their lives was the cross of Jesus Christ. At the very heart of who they were was a recognition that they didn't have it within themselves to save themselves, to be good enough, to know what it was to transform the world. But they recognized that Jesus' blood, his body and his blood poured out for us. The conquering of death on the cross changed everything about everything about everything. And so as we, we, uh, I finish speaking this morning, we're going to do this act of remembering Jesus. We're going to take bread and wine as Jesus instructed the early church to do, as Jesus asked us to do it. We're going to take some wine and the wine represents the blood of Jesus Christ, which paid for the sins of the world, which was broken and poured out on the cross for us. We're going to take a little bit of bread, gluten-free bread. We take a little bit of bread because the bread represents Jesus's body. And as we take that little wine and that little bit of bread, what we're doing is remembering. We're remembering that the whole universe, the spinning of the universe centers around the cross, that our lives center around Jesus, that the whole world centers around this moment 2,000 years ago when we were lost, when we were broken, when we had nothing, and Jesus came and redeemed us and paid for us. Now, it might be that this is all very new to you today and you're thinking, man, I'd love to know more about Jesus, but I don't really get it yet. And if that's the case, then feel absolutely free when we invite you to come forward just to say, hey, I'm just gonna sit quietly in my seat. I'm not gonna come up for communion today. But the communion table is open and we would love you to come forward. And it might be even as you come forward that you're like, man, I've, I have lived a life that has been so far from worshiping God that God has been the froth on my life and now I want to make God the center of my life. And if you, as you come forward, just use this opportunity to take
take the blood, to take the bread, bread, the body and the blood, to take the wine, to take the bread, to use that as an opportunity to recommit yourself to Jesus. We're going to invite you to come up through the middle and we're going to give you a little bread and you dip it in the wine or you can dip it in the grape juice, which is the short glasses. And then you can just go and sit down and we'll have some time just to reflect just to wait, just to listen to God because we recognize that God is at the center of life and at the center of life is the cross of Jesus Christ and that changes everything.